9 o'clock hour, we kind of go over a historical biography of a, of a great Christian from the past. And then in the service, we highlight one of the truths of the Reformation and really focus in on that. And so we're going to do that today. Um, the choice of, uh, <coughs> of, uh, of historical figures this year um, is a process of elimination. I had a lot of guys that I was interested in studying. Usually the way that happens is I'm interested in studying somebody's life. And so I study them and try to put something together for about 50 minutes in here, which is kind of tough to do most of the time for me to narrow it down to 50 minutes. But uh, this year in my own study, I, I did a I did, uh, study on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who is much more contemporary than most of the men that we've done in the past. We've done a study on Luther. We've done a study on um, on uh, John Bunyan. We've done studies on several men from from um, Jonathan Edwards. We've done studies on men who basically two or three hundred years old or older. This year, obviously, Bonhoeffer is a man of the 20th century, born in 19. Um, 1906 and died in 1945, so he's uh, fairly contemporary to us. Some, a lot of people know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A lot of people know a lot of uh, different sides of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so I'm going to try my best to be fair. He's not a perfect man. Matter of fact, the title this morning is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a complex man living in a world of complexity. And that's, that's the best way I know to kind of sum him up in, a, in a one statement. If you want to know, you know, what, what resources are out there, his best, his best friend, uh, by, a man by the last name of Beige, B-E-T-H-G-E, he's German. Uh, almost everybody that I'll try to pronounce their name today is German. He was, uh, Bonhoeffer himself was German. So laugh, giggle, it's tough for me to know I'm not German, I don't speak German, so... I probably butchered a lot of these things, but um, Beige wrote a book on him, uh, basically a memoir. Uh, he took a lot of Bonhoeffer's own writings and just distilled them down for us uh, to read about him. It's a great book. It's still unsurpassed, really, because of its eyewitness. Beige lived with him, knew him. Uh, but a new writing, which is very controversial, uh, it, but I think stands up to history, is a book written and released this past year by Eric Metaxas. And you might know Metaxas. He writes for the New York Times. And he wrote um, the book which was put on screen, uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, and uh, and he, he uh, is a biographer of several people. Uh, you can tell he, he did a lot of research. There's 540-something pages in here. Um, so this I'll be quoting some from this. And then... Um, I was contacted by John Walker, and I've I've finished almost all of this manuscript. This is not released yet, but it's a book called Costly Grace, and it's um, a contemporary review of Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And from what I can see, he's done an excellent job. I'll be writing a review on this, actually, for the author. So uh, those are kind of some resources. Um, what, What to start with if you wanted to read something? Written by Bonhoeffer. Uh, first of all, if you um, if you uh, choose to read something by Bonhoeffer, you'll have to put on your boots. Um, he is uh, he is uh, equal opportunity offender. 
And uh, he wrote two very famous books, both which I've read and would recommend to you. One is called Life Together. It's a small little pamphlet-sized book. Maybe, uh, at the, at the, I can't remember the exact, by type settings, you know they're different. I've seen them as small as 85 pages, and I've seen it as big as 120 so it just depends on the typeset. But Life Together, it's his book on community, on Christian community, and uh, is, is uh, really good. And then his most famous book is The Cost of Discipleship. This is actually my granddad's copy. Uh, my granddad bought this and read it and underlined and wrote notes in it. And uh, so you can't have my copy. Somebody asked me for it the other day. I told them no, they couldn't have it. He said it was only a dollar forty-five. I said I know, but that stamp right there means more than anything to me. <laughs> so this is my granddad's copy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, and um, this book is revolutionary in the sense that it and it's very challenging in the sense that he he uh, and we'll quote a couple times out of here today. It, it, he. Uh, his understanding of what it means to follow Christ, if it doesn't challenge you, then I, you might be dead. Um, because he really confronts easy believism, which was a problem in his day. Cheap grace, as he called it. So, those are some resources. That's some, uh, some writings about him. Now, how, how to sum up a life like his, although he only lived 39 years um, before he was martyred. Um, I, how to sum up a life like this is is very difficult. So I'm going to do my best and try to leave a little bit of time, maybe if you have some questions, and we'll see if we can do that or not. Bonhoeffer was a theologian. He was a pastor. And at the end of his life, he was a martyr. Um, Eric Metaxas calls him, and it's the subtitle actually to his book, he calls him Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, and Spy, a Righteous Gentile versus the Third Right. Um, this this man Bonhoeffer, not by himself, but as the leader of the Protestant Church, the the true Protestant Church in Germany in in the days of the Third Reich, stood boldly against Hitler and the Nazis. Um, how boldly? Well, I'll let you judge. In 1937, um, Bonhoeffer, who was in his late 20s wrote a personal letter signed in his own handwriting to the Fuhrer, attacking the Fuhrer, his principles of leadership, his principles of, of uh, society, and basically accused him, uh, even in those early days of uh, the reign of Hitler, of, uh, of seeking the extinction of all moral society in Western Europe. And uh, so you tell me how brave he was. He was, a, he was a, without question, one of the bravest men I've ever read about. He was born in, in fe, on February 4th, 1906, and he was one of a pair of twins. And his sister Sabine and him were close throughout their, their, their growing up days. Uh, they traveled widely through Germany. They had a vacation home. He was born in an aristocratic family, um, very prestigious family of theologians. And of scientists, his dad, Carl uh, Bonhoeffer, was uh, a doctor of psychology, which is very different than than it is today. He was basically a medical doctor. He he had studied the human brain as much as you could study it with the with the crude uh, things that they had at that time. And so he would be what we would call a, a neurologist today. They called him a psychologist. 
And he was, became so uh, well-known in Germany, Karl Bonhoeffer did, that he was hired as the chair of psychology at the University of Berlin. Now, this kind of begins to weave us into the storyline of, bon, of Dietrich and his uh, stance against the Third Reich. You see, because it's from his place inside the loop, so to speak, of the upper crust of, of German society that he got to view the atrocities. Um, he knew of the concentration camps before anyone outside of uh, the inner loop of Berlin knew of them. He heard of the atrocities planned for the Jews and the gypsies and uh, those of, of, uh, of different races far before anyone else outside that loop would know what was going on. And so he had kind of an insider's position because of who his dad was. In 1923, uh, Bonhoeffer started to study at Tübingen University. And he studied there under some pretty famous theologians. You might not know them because you grew up in fairly conservative circles. One of them being Adolf von Harnack. And Adolf von Harnack is the leading historical critic of the scriptures from that time period in Germany. Germany had gone from the Mid-Ages into Reformation, led by Luther. Uh, and Aaron uses the, the statement in his presentation this morning, so I won't steal all his thunder. But it, it, after darkness, light. In reality, what happened in Europe in the 1500s, in the early 1500s, was a move from the dark ages uh, into a time of, of reformation. Also, the secular term renaissance is used to to speak about that time. And it was led by men like Martin Luther, who held on to academic pursuit and held on to the highest standards for excellence in study, but also held firmly, most of them, to a belief in God and even a firm belief in the Scripture. And so those two things came together, the belief in in a higher academics, uh, we went from a time where no one, not very many people knew how to read to a time where people were pursuing the outer stretches of the universe. I mean, it, it's, it's, really, a, it's a really an amazing time. And so because of that uh, shift that happened in the 1500s, we could say that after darkness came light, light in all areas. The, the Reformation, the Renaissance brought that. Well, we could also say in theology, especially in the 1940s, Germany had returned to darkness. Germany had turned, returned almost completely to darkness. And, and it was led by men like uh, von Harnack, Leitzmann, and then uh, um, Bonhoeffer's main professor, Reinhold Sieberg. These men dissected the scripture, uh, took away what they called the myths of the Bible, which included the resurrection, the virgin birth, any miracle. The Old Testament was almost completely thrown out as a false uh, book, a book made up by the Jews, and uh, the, the move away from a belief in a personal God and into a very, um, very spiritual but not Christian understanding of what, who God is. So that's the academic world he was trained in in 1923. And because of his, uh, his financial standing in his, in his family, he was able to do a lot of traveling. Like he, unlike people in his day who 
were, were relatively poor. If you know anything about history, they've come out of World War I, and the German people are completely demoralized. It's during Bonhoeffer's day, during this 23 to 24 period, that it is commonly said on the streets in Germany, in Berlin, that it took a wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks to buy one loaf of bread. Inflation had taken over. The army was no more. Uh, it was destroyed and annihilated and disbanded almost, even completely, uh, almost uh, d- done away with. It was part of the Versailles, the treaty uh, that was signed in, bringing into the conflict of World War One, and they were forced to take the full blame. Germany was of the war uh, by their opponents, and so they went into depression. Depression, not recession. A, a real depression. But because of his family and the aristocratic background he had, he had uh, access to uh, the, 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 the emperor or the, uh, the king of Germany uh, and the Ottoman Empire. Um, he, he, he spent personal time with the prince of Germany as a child. He played with them. The, uh, so this is his kind of his upbringing. So he lived in a little bit of a bubble as far as hard times were. He traveled. When he went to the university, he spent a semester abroad at Rome. Unheard of by German standards in that day, that he would be able to afford to travel to Rome. And it was at Rome that he fell in love with the ecumenical movement of his day. The ecumenical movement is the movement to bring churches together. Okay, And, uh, and so he uh, visited the Vatican. He visited... Uh, St. Peter's, he went to Mass, to High Mass there, even as a Protestant was impressed by that. And uh, so it began to open him up to the fact that Lutheranism was not the only way uh, to believe or to, to be saved. Because in his day, in Germany, if you were German, you were Lutheran. Okay, I mean, it was just, it's birthright. It was stamped on your birth certificate. You're Lutheran. Okay? And so... In 1927, he finishes his studies. At the ripe old age of 21, he has a doctorate, a Ph.D. in uh, in theology. And his uh, his uh, dissertation, uh, Sanctorum Communio, or the Communion of the Saints, is still believed to be the most influential book ever written in the 20th century on community. And it's from that that he distilled down that pamphlet, I'm telling you, life together. He challenged what was believed about the church in his day, pushed things, uh, very, uh, very much pushed things forward. In 1929 through 1930, because he was too young to be ordained in the Lutheran church, he went again. He left and went to Spain, Barcelona, where he was, uh, where he worked under a pastor. He, he was allowed to be a youth pastor. Uh, it was what we would call him. He, he did the confirmation classes. And so he taught the children and young youth. And, that, and he, he learned a lot in those days because, as you know, if you can teach a 12-year-old, you can pretty much teach anybody. <laughs> and if you can get a 12-year-old to be interested in theology, uh, you're, you got your start. And so he had to learn how to communicate to young children. Here this great theological mind is trying to teach young children the basics of Christianity. And so he learned how to be a pastor. Why would I tell you that? Because he learned how to be a pastor teaching young people. So here's this brilliant mind 
who has to distill things down onto the simplest of levels to communicate. And I think it really impacted the way he preached, the way he thought, and the way he dealt with people. He, he fell in love with the church, really, in Barcelona, even though he uh, found the Spanish to be quite lazy and slothful people in his own, in his own words, not mine. So if you're from Spanish descent, <laughs> that's, that's not from me. Um, so, uh, and fairly out of touch with the world. He thought they were basically hicks and hillbillies. Um, but that's not surprising considering, remember, where he came from, who his family was. And most anybody would have been a hick or a hillbilly as compared to him. So we move forward in time. He's still too young when he finishes at Barcelona. So in 1931, he came to the United States of America. It was a turning point in his life. He was sent on a fellowship scholarship to Union Theological Seminary. Union Theological Seminary is still today considered one of the most liberal places uh, in the United States of America. Riverside uh, Church is kind of the, the mother's church of Union Theological Seminary. And uh, so he went there, and he, he was a, t- a visiting professor, and he, um, he started some lifelong relationships with Erwin uh, Sutz from Switzerland, with uh, Jean Lazare from France, with Paul Lehman from the United States, and these men further pushed him in the ecumenical uh, thoughts he was already having, bringing churches together, finding a way to bridge the differences in, uh, in our beliefs. While he was in the United States, he visited Riverside and, uh, and hated it. Um, he left church and journaled that, that, that the Bible... Is, is used, used there very lightly. And, and a matter of fact, while he was at Union, he said, he said, there is no theology in the United States. There is no theology in the United States. He, as a matter of fact, foresaw the outcome of what we call the social gospel, where he said people will trade in the truth of God's gospel for a new gospel of saving people in this life while they burn in hell in eternity. That was his summation of what he saw at Union Theological Seminary. So what does a man do when he's the visiting professor and he won't go to the church at Riverside? He found an African-American congregation, Abyssinian Baptist Church, in downtown New York. And it's there that he began to teach. And it's there that he got in touch with the struggles of of the African-American population in the United States and the way that they were trying to, uh, to bring to light the injustices being done to their people. And so he went to church. He walked from seminary to Harlem every Sunday and taught. He left uh, his uh, bastion of theological liberalism and went and applied his trade. He traveled to the South where he found, uh, where he found that people were more honest in the South about racial c- problems. And he thought and he had great hope for the South. He believed the South would, uh, would be the leaders in bringing about a revolution in race relations. And so this is kind of his take. He traveled widely while in the United States. He went from New York in a car all the way to Mexico. So he, he saw a good bit of the United States, albeit through a windshield, but he still saw it. And um, he, uh, you know, he, he left an impact, to say the least, in, 19, in, in August 1st, 1931, he returned to Germany where he became the, a lecturer in theology, systematic theology, at the University of Berlin, one of the highest positions in the university. He spent 
two years in Berlin teaching. And, uh, and he, was, uh, he was always attending and, and pushing this ecumenical movement uh, forward while he was there. In 1931, he, he, became a, uh, he was appointed the Youth Secretary of the World Alliance of Promoting International Friendship, which became the World Alliance of Churches later. And so he go, keeps moving further and further towards this ecumenical belief. And in no- November of 1931, he was ordained at St. Matthias Church in Berlin. And it, and he, it was one of the highlights of his, de- of his life. Although, I believe he was not a Christian yet. Um, he did not have a personal relationship with Christ at this point. It's, it's after this where he himself says the light shone on him from the scriptures. And, uh, and it's after this that he begins to really soak in um, the truth of the scriptures and, and live them. Now, there's a lot of famous things that happened there during that time. In January of 1933, Hitler was elected the chancellor of Germany. And later, he took control as a dictator. Um, he began to arrest people, and he began to gain power, and he began to put uh, Bonhoeffer's contemporaries in prison for their beliefs. Bonhoeffer, as I said earlier, understood where things were headed in Germany far before anybody else. As a matter of fact, there's a controversial moment in Bonhoeffer's life. I, I think it's... It, it, I believe that historically we should say... Time ran out on his lecture. He gave a lecture in 1933. Again, talking about the boldness. Here Hitler is running on the platform of the Fuhrer, the ultimate leader. That's what a society needs is the ultimate leader. And uh, it's, uh, we might call it uh, a messianic type belief. Uh, and so here this this dynamic thing is happening in the German society. Remember, the people are downtrodden. And now they have this man who claims to be the leader of all leaders to lead them out of their depression and lead them to world dominance. And on the radio in Berlin, (laughs) young young Bonhoeffer is waxing eloquent one night on the, the demise of Germany under the leadership of the Fuhrer. Not under Hitler, but under the belief of a Fuhrer. He didn't, and that's where it gets confusing. A lot of people think he was talking about Hitler. He was really just talking about this principle which had become popular, that we need a Messiah to lead us out of our, our, our doldrums. But his time ran out. He had paid for a certain amount of time. His time ran out, and he was cut off in the middle of his speech. And from there on, he became a cult hero because they believed the Nazis had cut the communications. And, and, uh, and so it, it built his fame, so to speak. But at that point in his life, he was not opposing Hitler, uh, though he did later oppose him, very, as I said earlier, very strongly. So April the 1st, 1933... Uh, the boycott of Jewish businesses was pushed forward. Scholars believe that Bonhoeffer was influenced on the issue of this uh, boycotting Jewish businesses by his dear friend and African-American, Frank Fisher, who was the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church. They had a lot of communications during that time. So in the summer of 1933, a great decision had to be made. Nazism was on the rise, and a group called German Christians became the voice of Nazi ideology in the evangelical church. The Lutheran church was being taken over by this group, the German Christians. They wanted uh, an article signed that mirrored the state Aryan law, which Aryan means only white 
people of German descent can hold positions of authority. That's what they wanted. And so they, these churchmen, these German Christians in the Lutheran church were pushing for an identical thing to be written for the churches in Germany. That you could not be a pastor unless you were of pure Aryan descent. Now you can imagine what this did in Bonhoeffer's mind. He began to, um, and they were talking about things like, we are a separate race. Um, you, you can't be a member of the Lutheran church unless you're an Aryan and uh, and they were setting aside the gospel teaching, obviously. So Bonhoeffer, um, in September of, ni- of 1933, um, started a league called the, the Pastors Emergency League. And it was started to help Jewish pastors, to, to hide them from uh, anybody that would persecute them or seek, seek to put them in prison. His brother-in-law was a Jew, and his brother-in-law was a pastor. So he was in touch again. You see the way he touched. He was in the inner circle of the aristocracy of Germany. He lived in the beltway of Germany, so to speak, in Berlin. He, he understood because of his sharp mind, but he also had personal contact with this persecution that was just starting. So what did he do? He left. He left and, uh, and, and went to, um, he, uh, he left and went to England and was the pastor of a German church there. Um, St. Paul's Church, the Reformed Church of St. Paul in London. And again here he made close friends. He was always making friends because of his belief in Christian community. He was always looking for close friends. And he befriended a man named George Bell, who was the Anglican bishop in London at that time. And Bell becomes the contact of the outside world for the confessing church. Bonhoeffer would write letters send them to Bell. Bell would publish them in the London Times. They go all over the world. And so it was kind of the way he was his channel to talk about Nazism to people outside uh, of Germany. And uh, again, in fall, at the fall of 1933, the, the German Christians gained control of the Protestant church government. Their policy of excluding Jewish blood from the ministry was approved by the churches. And in September of 1933, the National uh, Church Synod uh, of Wittenberg, fittingly, um, basically signed the Aryan paragraph. It was, a, it was, a, it was an awful day in, in the church's history. In May 1934, uh, the anti-Nazi confessing church was organized in Barmen, Germany. Um, Bonhoeffer was a part of the group, but there was a more famous theologian, Karl Barth, who actually wrote the Barman uh, profession or the, the, the Barman uh, articles. And uh, they was quickly signed, and, and again, uh, Bonhoeffer rose in, in, uh, in the ranks there. He was loved by uh, men like Adolf von Harnack for his mind. He was loved by Barth for his zeal and his passion for Jesus Christ. And uh, most of all, he was despised by the Nazis because he refused to bow the knee to an idol, what he believed to be an idol in the Fuhrer principle. Um, he, um, in 1935, April the 26, 1935, um, Bonhoeffer established the anti-Nazi confessing church as an underground ministry, as an underground church. They didn't have the right to meet uh, openly. But uh, he, uh, he did this in Zingst, which is on the Baltic Sea. And in June, he moved them to Finkenwald, which was in Pomerania, which is a very remote 
part of Germany. They, they, they got out of Berlin to get this movement started. He took in 27 confessants, uh, young men, and they lived their life like a monastery, except this monastery was interactive with the world. He would pull them aside to teach them in the morning, at lunch, and at night. They slept in uh, adjoining you know, rooms and houses, but they worked in the world. And they pastured and shepherded flocks in the world. He believed that, that that was imperative. He saw that as one of the failures of Roman monasticism when you pull people completely out of the world and make them live in a conclave. So he started this, uh, this work. And, and because of that, um, he is credited with starting the only confessing church uh, seminary during the Nazi reign. And that's basically what it was. Yeah. He started that, and, and these are some of the, just a basic principle that he, uh, that he lived by. And you, you can see his revolutionary thoughts about community. One rule inside his community was this. No one was allowed to speak of another person unless that person was present. His beliefs on community are, are unmatched that I've found. In other words, if I want to talk about Bruce to Aaron, Bruce has to be standing there. If Bruce isn't standing there, Aaron's not to listen to me talk about Bruce. Not good or bad. Neither way. Only if the person's present can we speak of them. And so it was simplicity. It was a very simple uh, biblical ethic that he was working out and living. And it's during this time that he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, Life Together, the little pamphlet I'm talking about. And, uh, and then um, another book on pastoral care called Spiritual Care. Um, and so it was, this, these were great days, so to speak. These are, these are wonderful days. He was barred from lecturing in Berlin uh, during 1936, August the 5th, 1936. Uh, the Gestapo closed his seminary. Uh, the Gestapo is the military police arm of the Nazi uh, government. They closed Finkenwald, and uh, he uh, you know, lost contact with a lot of his men because 27 of them, it had grown at this point, it was bigger than 27, but 27 of them, of the, of the young men he was training were arrested and put in prison. Most of them never seen again. And so um, persecution was heightening. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Persecution was heightening. 1938, um, February 1938, he made the decision to join the Avoir. The Avoir is an intelligence agency inside of, of the German army. And what we have, what we find after the fact is that the Avoir was a movement of generals and high uh, military men who wanted to to assassinate Hitler. They believed Hitler had um, destroyed the German nation, had destroyed morals, had destroyed the, the history of the German army because he had forced them to go fight wars against countries that were not antagonistic. He had forced them to rape and kill and steal um, and to begin to butcher. The, now the, the um, reports from Poland are starting to come back that people are being burned to, alive, people are being shot in the back of the head by the army. And so this German group of generals, uh, led by a man by the name of General Canaris, all organized themselves legally as an intelligence group. And so you had the Gestapo and the Abwar who, who were at odds all the time, but they both were official government entities inside the Nazi government. Bonhoeffer could not join 
the army. Not because he was a pacifist, though I think he was in heart. He was he was uh, sympathetic towards pacifism, but he did believe in just war, and he did not think the Germans were just. So he couldn't join the army. Um, he joined the Avoir to get in the army intelligence wing and not have to go fight. And so it's from there he begins to plot. And he, because again of his great mind, he becomes one of the chief um, planners in the assassination attempts on Hitler. Um, that pretty much gets you killed in a dictatorship when you're found out. And so he's, he, he set his sights uh, towards this, uh, this end, that he would bring Germany out from under the totalitarian rule of Hitler. And, uh, and he and this group set out to do that. He left in 1939, goes back to Ger- uh, New York, and has basically, a f- he, he's free. He never has to go back to Nazi Germany. He's begged by his friends to stay in New York and then when Germany's free of Nazism, come back and lead the church and, and reform it in a sense. But after staying just a short time, he returned to, uh, to Germany. And he did it of his own free will because he said, I have no right to lead a free Germany if I'm not willing to suffer with my people. And so he returned, knowing he was probably returning to die. Uh, he made that decision. So he, in uh, 1941, he's forbidden to ever print or publish any other book. Um, September 1941, he becomes a part of a re- Operation 7, which was a rescue of Jewish citizens. They were rescuing Jewish, Jewish citizens. All this while, he's writing on theology. He's preaching in churches. He's leading uh, God's people through the confessing church. Um, in, ni- in January of 1943, at the age of 36, he, in- he becomes engaged to a beautiful young girl um, who's 18 at the time, half his age, um, Maria von Wiedemeyer. And her grandmother had actually set them up uh, on a blind date of sorts. And Bonhoeffer was odd, um, as most brilliant people are, and he was not very social. And when you're leading a revolution, you don't have time to flit around on dates and whatnot. But he fell in love with her. And uh, his letters to her are some of the greatest uh, romantic, right? If you're romantic, I mean, they're just top-notch. Guys, go copyright, plagiarize him, and send it to your wife. She'll love you. Um, it's fascinating. Um, and most of them are written from prison, from cell 92. We have them because those letters were saved and, and, and were uh, published later. Uh, under letters from prison, cell 92. And so, um, <clears throat> April the 5th, 1943, when he was 37 years old, he was arrested, taken to Tegel Prison in Berlin. Um, Christine, uh, Christine, his, his, his sister, one of his other sisters' husband, was also arrested um, on that day. February the 7th, 1945, after spending almost two years in Tegel Prison, in cell 92, he was transferred from there to Buchenwald concentration camp. He stayed there encouraging and leading services inside the, uh, the, um, the concentration camp. It's really miraculous some of the things he went through. Um, he, um, his guards fell in love with him, saw him as the truest man they had ever met, smuggled his letters out. He even had one guard offer to smuggle him out. 
um, because they fell in love with his Christian ethic and his Christian way of living. Um, he was he prayed every morning, every lunch period, and every night. And uh, his own captor said he was the truest man of prayer they had ever seen. Uh, there was a sincerity to his prayer life uh, that that came through. In 1940, in April of 1945, Hitler finally found what he had been looking for. He arrested General Admiral Canaris, and he took his diary. And when he read the diary, it became clear who was involved with the plots to kill him. And uh, so he himself, Hitler himself, um, gave the order to have Bonhoeffer killed and uh, wanted uh, detailed reporting. Uh, because he wanted uh, glory in his triumph over his enemies. On April the 9th, 1945, at the age of 39, Bonhoeffer was hanged at Flossenburg Prison. His brother-in-law, Danani, was killed. And, uh, also, one of four members of his immediate family to die at the hands of the Nazis. He had four immediate family members who died, all because of the plots and their leading the confessing church. Um, his brother Kloss was also killed. Now, um, the letters he wrote, as I said, were saved by Everhard Beige and published letters and papers from prison. And his love letters from cell 92 were also published from his time there. Now, that's kind of the history and the date of this man. And uh, that's not the whole story. What can we gather from a man that's, um, as I said, very complex? Because... I do not deny that in his early years he was a liberal. Um, he was raised in liberal theology. He was very brilliant. He was a good student. As he moved from the seminary into real life, he found that liberalism does not match up with what reality is. And he began to transfer his thoughts to the Bible. And it's there that he was converted. I believe it's there that he became a Christian in his study of the Scripture. And he fell under the influence of Karl Barth, who I believe to be a Christian, but uh, very um, uh, he's the leader of what we call neo-Orthodox uh, Christianity, which is the belief in a, in a um, in other words, if you look basically the, you shuck away the husk of the Bible and, and you get Jesus. That, that's what they're always looking for, which sounds great. The problem is, in practice, you, when you're shucking away the husk, you're shucking away the truth that God sent us in His Word. So it leaves you with this really um, experientially uh, heavy Christianity with no basis, no Christian document, no found foundation, no firm foundation. So he moved into that. And then I believe in, in prison, he moves from that to a more orthodox belief because he, all he had was the Bible. All he had was the Bible. And he, he asked some good questions in prison. Um, and, um, and so after his death, because he was so widely, worldwidely popular with people, all kinds of groups grabbed him as their hero. I'm talking about groups from evangelical Christianity, guys like me and others who have who've championed his books, to the death of God, atheists who took his statement about a religionless Christianity and took that to mean that he did not believe in God nor in, in Christianity, which I find to be quite hilarious because his whole life is about writing about God. If he doesn't believe there is a God, what did he, he, what did he do his whole life? 
And so, um, anyway, because of this, he's very controversial, even in his death. I just think his poem kind of says, says it all. He wrote a poem while in that cell, cell 92, and it's entitled, Who Am I? Does anybody know that poem? Okay, I didn't think so. Good. Now you will. These are his words. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equally, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then, really, now listen to this, all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That is not the contemplation of a man who does not know the mercy of God. You, you sense in him the, 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 the connection that he is a sinner, don't you? He's not the grand hero everybody thinks he is in his own mind. He's not the strong, resolute champion of freedom that everybody else said he was. He was weak. He, 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 was, he was shaking in fear. And yet, whatever he was, he belonged to God. Just to grab a, a taste of his thought. Of what he thought and what he wrote. He was a musician. Um, he, had a, he had a good voice, not a great voice. He was an excellent piano player. He, he, he played, uh, his family did. Uh, you know, they remind me of the Von Trapp family for some reason. I don't know, I guess they're, they're there in Germany makes me think of that. But every Christmas, the children, their gift to their parents was to uh, conduct a, a, a singing theatrical Christmas play. And Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, always played the piano for these things. And he was meticulous. He was a drill sergeant. He had a great ear for, for sour notes, as his sister would say. And, uh, and he was never shy in telling somebody they were sour. Uh, he said this about music. Music will help dissolve your per- perplexities and purify your character and sensibilities. And in time of care and sorrow will keep a fountain of joy alive in you. He, uh, he wrote music in prison. He, he played music throughout his life. 
Um, his only request when renting any place to live was that it had a piano and he was allowed to play. And he played often late into the night. So music was kind of, he was a musician. Um, he was a theologian. When he, his, this is a quote on faith. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. If we're if faith, if you look for a definition of faith, Bonhoeffer would say faith is struggling against your flesh with all the spiritual weapons God has given you. That's what faith is. Um, and he uh, he was he was quick to, as I said earlier, he was quick to write about um, his belief in life together. The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Christ. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so, it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him. Here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there was no God. The brother views me as, a, as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the way he talked to his students. This is the way he wrote about community. Uh, I don't think he would have done very well in our society that uh, wants to send everybody to get a prescription for their ailments. You know, this, this wasn't the way he thought. And and uh, in his uh, famous book, um, his life can really be summed up as a life in the struggle against cheap grace. And he defines cheap grace in his first chapter. On cost of costly discipleship. Anybody ever read this book? No. Wow. You need this book. I know I say that a lot, but you need this book. If you don't read anything but the first uh, chapter, you you got it. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Now he then begins to describe cheap grace. I won't go through all of his definition. I skip over. To a point where he kind of sums it all up in my mind. Cheap grace, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Now he's writing this in the 1930s. But I think it fits today. Isn't that what our society is trying to do? Justify people without a sin that people commit without justifying the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say. And so, everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. The world goes on in the same old way, and we were still, are still sinners, even in the best life, as Luther said. 
Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. That was the heresy of the enthusiasts, the Anabaptists, and their kind. Let the Christian beware of rebelling against the free and boundless grace of God and desecrating it. Let him not attempt to erect a new religion of the letter by endeavoring to live a life of obedience to the commandments of Jesus Christ. The world has been justified by grace. He's saying this mockingly the way they said it, the way they define grace. The Christian knows that and takes it seriously. The Christian person does not just say grace counts. He believes it. He lives it. He knows he must not strive against the indispensable grace of God. Therefore, let him live like the rest of the world. Of course he would like to go and do something extraordinary. And then he, and then he begins to tell us to live a normal life. Live in life every day under God. He goes on with his understanding of cheap grace and says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must not. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And these are the the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now you can claim he doesn't know who God is. If you're a liberal, and you can claim him if you're an atheist, but you got to deal with this book. You got to deal with the man who would write about costly grace and would live costly grace. How do I ultimately hold the complexity of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who was a liberal at his beginning, a neo orthodox in his middle, and I argue an orthodox at the end? How do I hold this man uh, who? as a private citizen sought the death of his leader. I haven't talked about that, but that's a very difficult question, isn't it? We don't have enough time to deal with it. Is it right for a group of citizens to assassinate their leader, even if that leader is ruthless and evil? That's a very difficult ethical question to answer. 
before you answer too quickly as Americans, we have to also answer then if Dietrich Bonhoeffer is wrong, ultimately, were our revolutionary forefathers wrong who rebelled against their state and their crown at the cost of many lives over the issue of taxation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer rebelled against the extinguishing of a race. Our forefathers rebelled against taxation, against lack of representation, against who they viewed to be a tyrant, King George. I'm not saying either are wrong. I'm saying before we answer too quickly on Bonhoeffer, we have to answer also the, the question of the American Revolution. It just gets difficult, doesn't it, to know. The bottom line when he reasoned this was this. If I, a private citizen, he knew, the, he knew the struggle. If I, a private citizen, on the streets of Berlin drinking coffee, see a madman behind the wheel of a vehicle, mowing down, running over innocent citizens repeatedly, and I, as a private citizen, hold a gun, is it my right to then go in the street and shoot the driver of the car to spare the life of the innocent? And his reasoning was, it's not only his right, it would be his duty as a Christian to stop the murder of the innocent people. And so he saw himself standing in front of the runaway car of Hitler and firing shots into, this, in the, into, the, into, the, into the way of a man he believed to be evil, ultimately. So whether you agree with him or not, he wrestles with things very, very uh, well. He asks these questions. How do you deal, how do you sum up the life of a man? who is so complex. I do it this way. Jesus said, no greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He said that about himself. And yet I think it was applicable to this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He laid down his life for his friends, both German, Jewish, African-American, gypsy, he laid down his life for his fellow prisoners. On his way to be hanged, knowing he was going to be hanged, kneeling and praying, his executioner said, I've witnessed the most devout prayer I've ever seen. Bonhoeffer rose and walked to the gallows. They hung Germans hung their, their uh, condemned men naked. So he was stripped of his clothes that April morning and marched of his own, own will to the gallows. He looked at his executioner and said, this is death, the beginning of life for me. And he went and willingly died. Less than 23 days later, Germany fell. The war was over. Flossenburg was liberated. Hitler committed suicide. What he had struggled for was attained. But he didn't see it in this life. So I hold him as a man of complexity. I don't justify all that he believed. But I think we should do well, do well to think about discipleship the way he thought. And think about community deeply the way he thought about it and to be willing to lay our life down for what we believe for the man 
the God-man we believe in and for our friends. Let's pray. Father.